morning everyone. Good morning. We're uh, midway in our series in the first three Psalms in the book of Psalms. Uh, yesterday we thought about uh, blessing, happiness, joy and uh, the definition in Psalm 1 of blessing, namely a fruitful life under God's watchful care. Uh, today we're looking at a psalm that introduces the theme of sin and evil into the book of Psalms and contributes some important things that I think uh, will be of real value to us. Certainly our world's got an odd relationship with evil, hasn't it? Uh, we, um, we mourn and uh, are appalled by terrible acts of violence, similar to, uh, for example, the one that happened in Queensland quite recently with the family and the fire. Um, but on the other hand, there's a certain attraction to evil or maybe a, a flippancy about evil. Um, one radio, a uh, couple of hosts were talking about the seven deadly sins and basically fessing up to the uh, uh, more enjoyable ones. And there have been revisions of the seven deadly sins over the years uh, in many quarters. Um, they kind of saw the seven deadly sins as quaintly hilarious to, and took pride in, in fessing up. One of my favourite ice creams is the Magnum, and I don't have it too often, but they had a special series entitled The Seven Deadly Sins. Anyone tried one of them? Uh, I'll tell you what they were. So there was Gluttony, which uh, uh, was a classic white and uh, um, cream chocolate mix. Lust was strawberry. I reckon coffee flavoured might have been better. Uh, wrath was vanilla with fruits of the forest. I reckon tea might have been better there. Uh, envy was pistachio and so on. So it, it kind of we have this odd relationship with evil and in Australia particularly in, in our culture we have this idea that uh, the rebel, the one who bucks authority, think Ned Kelly, um, is, uh, is someone to be celebrated. And then think to a popular music um, my son Toby introduced me to the music of Billie Eilish, if you can call it music, and, uh, and her breakthrough song was uh, Bad Guy, and he can do the whole song just with his knee banging against the car door. <laughs> and the main line is, and I, I'll try not to sing it for you, is I'm a bad guy, duh. <laughs> Do you remember it? Anyone, anyone know? Yeah. So it does happen, doesn't it? So the question really we, we're confronted with in this psalm is, is evil really just a trifling thing to be equated with a bit of fun or harmless indulgence? So Psalm 2 doesn't give us the whole story about evil. It depicts evil in a certain way. I think it's one that's neglected, so it's good for us to hear it. It answers three questions very helpfully. So in verses 1 to 4, what's wrong with evil? Uh, verses uh, 5 to 9, what's God doing about evil? And then verses 10 to 12, what should we do in response to evil? So first of all then, what's wrong with evil? Well, sin is many things, isn't it? So sin is a form of self-harm in one sense. Sin certainly does harm to others. Sin is a form of demeaning slavery. Uh, sin is a kind of uh, futile thing. It's ultimately unsatisfying. Um, it um, makes us into slaves of another God. But here in Psalm 2 we find another point about sin, and it's this, that rebelling against God is futile. Look at verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot 
in vain. Now in the original context, if we read on in the psalm, it uh, looks like a situation where there's a power struggle going on. Maybe the Israelite king has died and the nations around uh, the people of God are wondering about coming in and taking over. Um, this still happens today, of course. Remember when the aptly named Kim Jong-il died? <laughs> and uh, his son Kim Jong-un took over. Yep, dad jokes is all I've got, so all, all I'm after is a groan, okay? <laughs> Just be clear about that. <laughs> And uh, um, Kim Jong-un, when he took over, he killed some relatives and some other people. So it's in totalitarian states in particular, you need to uh, continue to do this to hold on to power. And that's the kind of thing that's happening back uh, behind the curtain in Psalm 2. Actually, I know a lot about this situation. I used to go on church and Christian camps and stay up late and play the excellent game of Risk. Remember Risk? So risk, basically, you make treaties with your friends and then someone dies and you break a treaty. For some reason, my friends didn't like it when I broke the treaty. Yep. So you plot and conspire against each other. Um, we tried saying, look, it's, we're going to rename the game. It's not risk, it's world evangelization. <laughs> but uh, it didn't seem to help. So nonetheless, there, there is this almost cosmic dimension to the rebellion that's going on here. And sin really is here, let's, let's be clear about this, it's rebellion against God. So verse 2, for example, the kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed here is the king, as we'll see in a few moments. Now, interestingly, in the uh, uh, book of Acts chapter 4, the apostles take that verse and apply it to the conspiracy and the plotting which led to the death of the Lord Jesus. And the kings there, are, it's quite a big group. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel conspired to kill God's holy servant, Jesus. So the kings rise up, they take a stand. The fact that it's kings of the earth, plural, makes you think, well, this is pretty formidable. What's God going to do about this? And they're against God and his appointed Israelite king. They seek to throw off God's anointed Messiah king and uh, thwart God's plans for the world. See verse 3, let us break their chains, their chains being God and his anointed one, and throw off their shackles. How does the Lord respond? So in verses 1 and 2 we see their actions, they're conspiring and plotting. Then in verse 3 we hear them, their speech. Verse 4 gives us God's response. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God thinks their plans are ridiculous. So what we learn here is that rebelling against God is doomed to failure. It doesn't work. It will fail. It's crazy. It's ludicrous. It's pointless. The mood of this response from God is one of amazement. Um, it uh, reminds me of another bad um, well, I'll get a couple of bad movies here, but the, the, the bad movie, namely Austin Powers, where uh, Dr. Evil, um, again, aptly named, kind of the... the, the <laughs> but here, it's not the, uh, the rebels who are laughing, it's God who laughs in derision and mocks them. And note that God stays seated. The kings of the earth, earth rise up. They have to stand. But God is enthroned. He doesn't even bother to get up. And the word Lord here is interesting too. Um, I'll just double check this. So uh, the word Lord 
um, is, is not in capital. So just a technical point which some of you will know about and others won't. So when the word Lord in most Bible versions is in capitals, it's a reference to what uh, is the divine name um, introduced in Exodus chapter 3 and uh, where we sometimes say it as uh, Yahweh because we're not sure how it's pointed, what the vowels should do. It's misrepresented as Jehovah in other places. But there's another word for Lord in Hebrew, Adonai, which is really about the master. So this isn't the personal name of God. It's Lord as the master, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The master of the world scoffs at them. Indeed, rebelling against God is futile. That's the perspective we get from the psalm. So well, what about us? We're hardly kings. How does this uh, connect to our lives? Well, I think there is a sense in which we can ourselves rebel against God. There's different types of evil, isn't there? There's the the evil we do without even realising. But there's a more conscious form of evil. There's a pathway along which we sometimes travel, as later in the psalm it's called, a way of evil. And so I, I think the psalm's saying to us that next time you and I are tempted to be taken in by consistent constant prideful thoughts to act out of pure self-interest to respond with malice to hold a grudge to be greedy to take control of our lives and they're just the things that I struggle with currently Um, when we stop walking in the light humbly and openly before God this is what we should remember friends all such rebellion is doomed to failure the one who sits in heaven enthroned in heaven laughs he shakes his head in disbelief because our rebellion will not go unnoticed and uh, there are severe consequences Um, the love of God us loving God is something that really does motivate us in our lives to all sorts of things I think of 2 Corinthians 5 Paul says the love of Christ which I take to be love for Christ compels me it drives people to do crazy missionary service, to be sacrificial in their giving with their time. So there's a compelling side to love of God. So God, love for God compels us. The fear of God constrains us. It's the thing that will stop us from consistently rebelling against God, ruining our lives and ministries. Think of Romans 3, that uh, dreadful catena of quotations from the Old Testament, which ends up with one from the Psalms, feet swift to shed blood, and so on. What does it say in the end? There is no fear of God before them, before their eyes. And if we really had the fear of God, which this Psalm does put into you, then it would make a difference to our lives in terms of open, conscious rebellion. So what does God make of human rebellion? He scoffs. What does he do about it? Verses 5 to 9. See verse 5? He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Make no mistake, God will end their rebellion by installing his king. In the original context, by uh, installing a new Davidic king on the throne. Uh, God is full of wrath and anger, angry condemnation. Now this is another topic in itself and it comes to more full flower in Psalm 3, which we're doing tomorrow.
So come back to chapel tomorrow and we'll think about God's wrath and anger. God says, my king will prevail on Zion, the place set apart for the worship and service of the living God. Because God is behind the Israelite king. How certain is the rule of God's king? Verse 7, God's chosen king will rule by divine decree. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now occasionally in a book or in a movie, something happens early on or you read something. might be something that's said or just something that happens. It might be completely innocuous. It might seem quite important. But the full importance of that something doesn't emerge until later in the movie or in the book. Have you ever had that experience? I hope you have, otherwise you haven't read a book. (laughs) So uh, one example would be, um, I don't know if anyone's seen um, uh, the movie The Sense of an Ending. Anyone seen The Sense of an Ending? It's too highbrow for you lot. Anyway, so, uh, so in The Sense of an Ending, there's a scene right at the beginning where the friend drives away and looks in his rearview mirror and his friend is standing there waving and the mother of his friend waves like this. And you think at the time, it's a bit odd. You forget about it. And then later in the movie, whew, it all comes apart. Everything falls apart. And that little, that furtive wave was uh, so important and significant in the plot. Um, of probably action movies are what you're into. So uh, the Born Identity. <laughs> yep, the Born Identity. It, it has all sorts of things, especially at the beginning of the first movies, like bullet holes in his back and uh, weird things on his arm and some odd little key to a box. Yep. You think, oh, I wonder where this is going. And then later on, it all kind of emerges and your mind goes back to that scene and it makes much more sense. This is what we have in this psalm. This is exactly what we have. Look at verse 7. We could just... Uh, dwell on it for the whole of our sermon. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, he said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Because the Israelite king is a prefigurement of God's true son and God's true king, the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 5 makes it explicit. The psalm refers to the exaltation and coronation of King Jesus using this text. But it's more implicit too. So the sonship of the king goes back to 2 Samuel 7, you'll remember, where uh, David is told that God will treat and discipline uh, his uh, his heirs and uh, the ensuing kings as a father does to a son. And then you get uh, scenes in the uh, Gospels, for example, where at the transfiguration, at the baptism of Jesus, you hear a voice from heaven saying, You are my son. It's not a quote from this. But it does bring your mind back here to see just how significant this is in the plot of the Bible. In Matthew 23, we read that parable a few minutes ago. And uh, let's kill God's son. Brings your mind back here to Psalm 2, doesn't it? And uh, you see how the whole Bible fits together so beautifully. It's called biblical theology. (laughs) So, God will end all rebellion by crowning his chosen king. How far will this rule extend? God's chosen king will rule over the whole world. See verse 8. Ask me. This is the king asking of God. 
And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, occasionally you'll see this as a missionary text at conferences. And uh, it's, it's a lovely text, but it's not a missionary text. Because the next verse says, You will break them with an iron rod and dash them to pieces like pottery. This is about God's resolve to put to an end all rebellion against him. And again, the, the kingdom of God is... Uh, such an important theme in the Bible when we get to Jesus and John the Baptist and others proclaiming the kingdom of God, of course, you'll, uh, uh, your mind will be taken back to a text like this. And we're reminded here that, uh, that uh, themes are bigger than terms because the term kingdom of God doesn't even appear anywhere in the Old Testament, although Mike reckons it turns up in Obadiah 21, but uh, not quite. Um, uh, but the theme is there, isn't it? So, and then the significance of sonship is brought out with the inheritance idea. The nations are going to be the son's inheritance. Sovereignty over the rebels. And note the certainty. He will ask, I will make the nations. And the nations of the earth, and uh, as it will go on to say, uh, the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, of course, is a reference to Australia. Yep. It's not really, it's a reference to Tasmania. But, uh, <laughs> but you can see, it's, it's a way of saying this is a uh, universal rule. Indeed, rebelling against God is futile, and God will end all rebellion by crowning his chosen king. So what should we do about the fact that uh, um, uh, God's decree of his son's coming certain complete universal rule what are we going to do about that? What are the kings going to do? What should they do? What should we do? It's very similar. In verses 10 to 12, we learn that we should smarten up and submit to God's chosen king urgently. So we get a bunch of uh, commands here, imper imperative mood verbs. Be wise, be warned, serve, celebrate, kiss. Get on the right side of history is what the psalm's telling us because one day... All rebellion against God will be quashed. And then there's a beautiful closing promise of blessing at the end, which we'll get to in a moment. But first of all, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, smarten up, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. So there's great irony here because uh, the, the language is of instructing a child. And these are the, the rulers of the whole earth. What are they to do? Serve the law, here it is, with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Because it's the smart thing to do to become a worshipper of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then fearing God will lead to us dealing with our own petty brands of rebellion. Verse 12 goes on to say, Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way, here's the language of uh, continuation of rebellion, will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The kiss the son is um, uh, one that, uh, uh, part of that verse that takes translators' attention. There's a bit of ambiguity in the Hebrew, but I think the main thing is with the translations. They try and find a way of rendering it that doesn't sound odd to our ears. Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, show respect. I think that's a bit weak, really. Pay homage. And then the worst one is the Net Bible. Give sincere homage. 
it just it kind of drains the whole thing of any impact. I think we do get the language of kissing someone in obedience. It's a symbolic act of submission, a conquered bowing. And we're to do that, and the kings were to do that urgently, lest God lose patience. Submit and escape the inevitable wrath to come, uh, to use some language from the New Testament. Sometimes evil takes our breath away, doesn't it? So when you read of genocide, of uh, the terrible atrocities uh, of child abuse, um, it's very common and uh, a perfectly legitimate human response to ask, where is God when these things are happening? What, what's he doing about these things? And the answer is, he's waiting patiently until the day when he will put all things to right. He's resolutely determined to put an end to all rebellious evil. And in other parts of the Bible, we learn that his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. So don't mistake God's patience for indifference. Uh, Rebellion against God and his king, this is the big message of the psalm and my sermon, is a bad idea. Um, it's, uh, and, and the psalm ends on a beautiful note which picks up the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And blessing, as we mentioned uh, yesterday, is beautifully defined with an image of a fruitful life lived under God's watchful care. Let's pray that the Lord will have mercy on our lives so that we submit to him now and take refuge in him. As we approach the communion table in a few minutes, we want